representation matters. If you're active on social media, you have no doubt come across this popular hashtag. Representation matters because whose stories are told and how they are told shapes our perception of the world, our perception of what is normal and what is different or other. Welcome to Fulbright Forward, a diversity podcast. My name is Susanne Hamsha and I'm the diversity coordinator for Fulbright in Europe and Eurasia. If you can't see it, you can't be it. This is what US American feminist and activist Gloria Steinem said almost 10 years ago with regard to the underrepresentation of women in positions of power and influence. Examples are powerful influencers. Research shows that many people look to peers for cues and guidance and draw courage from knowing that others before them already forged a path and broke the glass ceiling. When you don't know the possibilities, how do you figure out who and what you can be? This is a question that can be asked not only with regard to the representation of women, but also with regard to the representation of racial and ethnic minorities and other marginalized populations. And it's one of the questions I will explore with today's guest, Margaret Ohia Novak, who is a linguist with a special focus on discourse analysis, a human rights activist, a cross-cultural training facilitator, and an alumna of Fulbright Poland. Margaret, hi and welcome to this episode of our diversity podcast. Um, to get us started, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us about your main research interests? Uh, sure. Uh, hi, Susanna. Thanks for inviting me here. Uh, yeah, as you already said, uh, I'm a trainer, I'm an academic as well, uh, but I would like to say a few words about my ethnic background and cultural background, which is also relevant in terms of my work. So I'm a daughter of a Polish woman and a Nigerian man. I was born and raised in Poland and I lived a few years in Nigeria during my early childhood. And as a Polish-Nigerian woman, I have experienced uh, prejudice and racist discourse on my own skin. And this is the main topic of my research. Um, so I look at ways in which people uh, in Poland uh, speak and write about uh, Black people, in particular people of African descent. Uh, so the discourse that I experienced throughout, throughout my childhood uh, is that most Poles uh, used to call me uh, Murzynek, uh, which could be translated into an English word, a Negro. And uh, to, also today, I'm called by other adults um, very similarly, uh, sometimes with no intention of offending me even, just describing me. Uh, so as I said in my studies, I make references to my personal experiences, to incidents of uh, discrimination and to overheard speech as well that was directed at my person. And because speakers usually think that I do not speak Polish, they assume that I'm not a Polish speaker, a native Polish speaker, which I am, uh, then they would, be, they would easily express themselves even in front of me. Uh, also, as a researcher, I position myself as a black mixed-race scholar who is impacted by the discourse, uh, who lives in a predominantly white society, as Poland is, and who studies a self-reflexive response to this racially distinct uh, context as well. So I'm interested both in language use and in power abuse and in reproducing domination through discourse. And I, in my work, I've met, um, I, I often ref, refer to microaggressions as well that I experienced, such as where are you really from, as in implying that I was not really coming from Poland. So as I say, this polarizing questions that imply 
imply that I was not really Polish or I didn't speak Polish. But I also look at blatant acts, uh, blatant acts of uh, everyday racism um, that were directed at my person and are directed routinely at uh, black people in Poland and people of African, African descent living in Poland, even though mm, some of the community, some of the members of the community uh, were born in Poland and are defining themselves as, as Polish. So I'd say this is uh, the basis uh, of my work. And I kind of, you know, come from that personal position and per, a person that is a researcher that is embedded in the in their own research, so to speak. Well, thank you. Thank you so much also for explaining how you position yourself vis-a-vis -vis your research. Um, this, is, this is a very helpful contextualization. I would like to go back to something I said in the intro when I mentioned something that has become a common popular phrase uh, when we talk about representation, and that is, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Uh, is this phrase something that resonates with you? Um, did you have role models that you could look up to when you were a child, but also later in your life when you went to university and you started to build your career as, as an academic? Or do you feel like you are very much uh, the mold breaker and trailblazer for uh, women of color in your country? So in a way, what you said right now uh, about being a mold breaker and a trailblazer is in a way it's true because I grew up in Poland in the early 90s, uh, late 80s, when uh, people of color were not visible at all in the streets. And even if there were people of color and if they, they, they do live in Poland, uh, most of them do not want to speak about the experiences of racism. Maybe it has changed in the last few months after the Black Lives Matter protests, when people are encouraged to speak about the experiences. But before, voices like mine were not really heard. They were, they were regarded as subjective, as non-objective enough, especially in the academia. Uh, so, in, in a way, this underrepresentation is still going on because of the demographics, but because of the attitudes people may have towards uh, black people uh, and people of color in general. So, uh, and the question about the role models, uh, did I have role models in my life? Yes, I did have a lot of role models, but they were not necessarily living uh, around me. So I looked up to, um, to black feminists uh, in the US. Uh, I looked up to critical race theorists uh, and to uh, researchers and, uh, and scholars that were not really coming from my geographic context. So these were especially uh, scholars uh, working in Western European context, uh, but also in the, in the US, of course. You mentioned that you looked up to black feminists in the US and I think it's interesting that when we can't make sense of ourselves or our identities in our home country context, we tend to look elsewhere for guidance, right? And um, all of us who've lived abroad know how helpful um, the experience of being abroad can be in, uh, in making sense of one's identity, right? Because um, you know, that experience very often helps to learn more about oneself. Um, you're, you're the new kid on the block. You have the chance to explore parts of your identity that might be difficult to explore at home. Um, you can basically reinvent yourself, right? 
Um, so I, I would like to ask you if your time in the U.S. on your Fulbright grant changed how you perceive yourself and, um, and how you think about your identity. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so my experience in the U.S. as a scholar, as a Ph.D. student, but also as a, as a Black woman, uh, was uh, one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had, uh, not only in my career, but just, you know, in my life. So, for sh so definitely it did affect the way I saw myself and I, do, I still see myself. Uh, first of all, uh, it gave me, as I said, a lot of power. It empowered my, my, uh, my academic uh, position, as, so to speak, because, uh, you know, I could see, especially in academia, that uh, cultural identity, ethnic ident identity is an argument to use when you speak about issues of race and racism and the racist discourse. For sure, I was understood in academia uh, much uh, better than I was in, in the US academia, much better than, than I was in Poland. And at the same time, it did change the way I, per I perceived myself because, you know, it gave me the strength uh, and uh, it allowed me to speak about many things that I wouldn't dare to speak in Poland, like for instance, about my racial experiences and about using these experiences to contribute as a contribution to my research. Uh, so yeah, in that sense, for sure. But also, you know, the way that I was perceived in the US by Americans, by other people there, the first minutes they saw me before I started speaking, they would think that I'm an African-American and they would already kind of impose this cultural identity on me and all the attitudes, so all the kind of meanings that are assigned to this identity. And then there was this moment, so when I interacted with someone and I started speaking, there was this question again, so where are you from? So it was a familiar question to me. So I would say, I was from Poland. Oh, really? From Eastern Europe? And are there Black, black people there? So I see this also as, an, you know, as a way of kind of, you know, this confusion. So, okay, you're Black, and you, but you're from Eastern Europe. So... Uh, same kind of confusion that people just do not associate certain identities with geographical contexts. Identity sure is um, a very complex and complicated thing, right? Um, I would like to go back to Poland and talk about the cultural representation of Black people in Poland in more detail. I know you've worked on the representation of Black people in the Polish language, in media, in popular culture, and you're, you're working extensively on what is called discursive discrimination. And I wanted to ask you if you could explain what this means. How is a discrimination created through this course? How does this work? Uh, so um, I think I'm going to say a few words about the Polish uh, context as well, for those of you who are not very, very familiar in relation to colonialism and to the history. So despite having no explicit history of colonialism in Africa and despite a general lack uh, of 
daily interactions with people of African descent among the great majority of Polish people, uh, I think racial colonial prejudice and colonial framework is deeply rooted in everyday language practices and in every everyday discourse. This also sometimes works as a premise to deny racism as well, because if there was no colonialism, like, why would racism be prevalent? Uh, which is not true, because it is prevalent through discourse, which is also uh, derived from global discourse and from global uh, consciousness, uh, which is very colonial still. Uh, so uh, Polish speakers, for instance, are often unaware of the racially charged content of their speech and especially in everyday Polish uh, language where the habit of associating black people with specific characteristics such as, you know, physical, intellectual, emotional, or cultural uh, is not always explicitly articulated, but it's kind of based on the deeply rooted polarization between Poles and foreigners. So for so examples of how black people are portrayed in the Polish language can be found in a range of discourses. And uh, first, uh, first is uh, discursive discrimination. So what do we see in Polish language that refers to black people and how Polish language represents black people? And this is present at all levels of discourse, uh, beginning, beginning with education, uh, textbooks, as I said, in media, in political discourse as well. Uh, so for instance, in uh, education, there is this uh, Nobel Prize winner's book um, by Henryk Sienkiewicz in Desert and Wilderness. It's a popular youth novel and it represents a colonial worldview and white people as superior as opposed to inferior black Africans. It's a book that was uh, written in the early uh, 20th century, but it's still existent in Polish curriculum at schools and it's presented to children as as a fact, it's as a descriptive fact. So with no critical, you know, uh, description or no, no critical reference to it, then, you know, it just becomes a descriptive uh, book of facts and so source of information for, for many, many children. And obviously then it affects the way in which discourse is shaped by them in their adult, adult life. Uh, so the other example in Polish discourse that I look at as a lexical item is a so-called M-word, uh, the word muzin, um, that uh, is used in everyday speech. And I think it's a good example on, um, to, to look at the word uh, which actively reproduces uh, stereotypes. This word also, you know, it uh, also cloaks the prejudice. Um, so uh, I think that uh, using this word, and I said it before, uh, the word could be um, freely translated into the word Negro in English. But uh, of course, there are historic differences, semantic differences, and pragmatic differences as well. So always, I think it's important to remember that it's a different context that the word is used in. And this context also shapes the meaning uh, in a way. Uh, so uh, in colloquial expressions in Polish, this, in Polish language, in you know, historical proverbs and idioms implying that black skin color is dirty and unwashable, these are the phrases that also uh, include the word, uh, the M word as well. You just said that the texts and images children grow up with have an impact on discourse in adult life. So um, the texts and images we see and consume as children 
influence the way we see the world and um, and also shape our collective consciousness. Um, I would like to pick out one more example of a popular children's book that I know you've worked on uh, quite a bit. It's called Merzenich Bumbo, so um, the M word is already in the title. Um, it's a popular children's rhyme about a little black boy. And um, I was wondering if you could uh, tell us more about the origins of, of this book and the images um, and stereotypes that it um, produces and, and reinforces. Uh, sure, yes. Uh, so uh, the rhyme Murzynek Bampo was written in 1935 uh, by Julian Tuvim. Uh, and it's a story, as you said, about the black boy uh, who lives in Africa, who goes to school, even though he doesn't want to go to school, who doesn't want to uh, take a bath, who refuses uh, to, to study and so on and so forth. So uh, it's a story that actually presents a black boy as inferior to, presumed, to presumably a white reader. Again, same with the novel by Sienkiewicz and same with the rhyme here. So even though they both come from early 20th century, the semantics that they're in, that, you know, the kid do, do not want to wash himself, uh, lazy, is lazy and so on and so forth. It doesn't, that he doesn't come, go to school with us. He lives far away in Africa. Uh, the semantics that uh, it conveys is present in many examples of contemporary public discourse today. So I guess this is the danger of this um, of these kinds of stories. So specifically this rhyme uh, also is a way to exoticize the other. So again, this, this, there is this uh, categorization and polarization of you know, creating two groups, us and them, and in a way also creating uh, attitudes and uh, reinforcing the stereotypes um, also in, uh, in that book uh, that are colonial uh, framework uh, based, uh, you know, they, they just uh, represent a very colonial view uh, of a black person. Yeah, thank you. I, I think this example takes us right back to the question we started out with, right? The question of representation. And I think it shows quite well why representation matters, why it is important. And it, it also illustrates why it is important to also always ask who gets to speak, who has a voice, um, who can tell their own story. And I know that uh, this summer in Poland, um, Black activists and allies united under the hashtag Don't Call Me Mersion to um, fight against racial discrimination, to fight for representation, for their voice being heard. I'm not sure to which extent you were involved in this movement, but I was hoping that you could still comment on it and then comment on its significance um, for the Black community in Poland. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, I wasn't directly involved in the movement as in the movement uh, because I'm pursuing my research on the term uh, for the last few years. So I've been looking at the term actually more than a few years now. So my most recent article is also about the term itself, but from a linguistic perspective, pragma linguistic perspective. In the social action, I wasn't so much involved, but I do know women that are involved and we work together. 
um, uh, that were involved. So Sarah Alexandra, Ogiu Gono, so these two people, two, two African Polish women that were involved that initiated the conversation. I think this is a very interesting and very crucial moment in, Pol in, in Poland's history as well. This is the first moment that the black communities, um, represent representatives of black communities, um, just uh, took a stance, like a very public stance. And uh, it also shows uh, how much the discourse in Poland is kind of, you know, reshaping maybe because the perspective of black people in Poland was not shown before in a public debate, was not present at all. So who could talk in public debate? Who, who, were, who were people, you know, in, uh, even, about, even in the events? I think this is an interesting topic to speak about with reference to the perspe perspective of discourse. How the discourse, from which perspective the discourse is presented, especially when it comes to issues like racism uh, or uh, race, uh, racial prejudice. Mm, to this day, it's uh, still predominantly white perspective, but I think through such actions, through such initiatives and, um, mm, and such movements uh, like Don't Call Me Mujin, I think there is the potential uh, for black, black communities uh, to, to have a voice in the public debate, finally. Uh, and to kind of combat the systemic racism that prevented them or, or still prevents them from speaking out to what there is and speaking not only about the experiences, but just speaking from an expert position. Margaret, this has been great. Thank you so much for sharing your personal experiences and your professional insights with us. I know we barely scratched the surface and we could keep talking for hours, but um, unfortunately we have to stop but um, I would like to ask you one final question, a short question, if I may. I'm sure you've heard this quote before by Angela Davis, um, who said, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept. Now, you're not only an academic, but also a human rights activist. And I would like to know what it is that propels your activism. Is it the refusal to accept things the way they are? And, um, and what is the change that you would actually like to see? Mm, I guess my biggest mo motivation uh, in life and in my career, in my work, is other people's lives. And uh, I never really uh, looked at my work as in, you know, helping myself or doing something for myself. It's just to not even helping others, but kind of, you know, creating a world in which at some point, perhaps it's not even the next generation or gen generation after, because I see the social change as a evolutionary process that will not change at one moment. I see it as, you know, contributing to a better world. Uh, and I, and it's not a slogan. I really believe it, like contributing to a better world uh, at some point in the future. And I really have this idealistic approach that we can change it through education, 
And because this is my basic tool of working, uh, and I chose this because I think that uh, working with children, uh, we can impact the future and changing what there is in their minds or even not changing, but kind of uh, giving them a framework to, uh, to, 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 to change what's there outside, to go uh, farther and move, uh, move the, or change the communities around them. I think uh, this is a um, very exciting thing to do. And for me, you know, I, I get a lot of excitement from my work as well. And I really hope uh, it will contribute to the global change. Uh, and especially here in Poland, that uh, it will be um, appreciated by many as well for the, in their lives. Whose voice is heard in public discourse and who gets to tell their own stories? These are important questions to ask when we talk about the representation of marginalized communities, as Margaret said. The danger of the single story is that it reproduces stereotypes and prejudices. We can only break this cycle if we listen to the stories of people from underrepresented communities and diversify representation. This concludes the second episode of our diversity podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please join us again next time.